Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Fertility Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Trollis, and today we're going to talk about why would I need a hysteroscopy? So the field of reproductive medicine has surgical uh, procedures, part of it. It's not all about in vitro fertilization or intrauterine insemination. So outpatients require surgery for various reasons. And we've gone from doing it exclusively in the OR to now doing a lot of things that are in the office setting. But the key is, of course, making it comfortable for you the office does make it less intimidating than a hospital, certainly much faster than a hospital, and usually a lot less expensive than a hospital, but the expertise of, of a good surgeon is to ensure that when we do it in the office setting, you're comfortable with minimal to no discomfort, and that we still can accomplish the procedure that we, we, we want to do. So laparoscopy is a different type of scope, than hysteroscopy. Laparoscopy is through the belly button uh, while patients are typically under general anesthesia. Some people have tried to do it uh, through the vagina to do laparoscopy, uh, but that not, hasn't really taken off uh, in this country. Hysteroscopy, on the other hand, is really our greatest tool to visualize the inside of your uterus. It's the gold standard. And with me today, is a, a very, very good friend. Uh, his name is Dr. Preston Perry, and he's going to talk about why would I need a hysteroscopy. Dr. Perry is board certified in OBGYN and reproductive endocrinology. Uh, he has uh, gone to medical school at the New York Medical College, residency at Tufts, and he did his fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the University of Louisville. So following fellowship, he was at the University of Mississippi where he was division chief in reproductive endocrinology. And after six years there, he left to start Positive Steps Fertility, as well as Periscope Fertility, where he continues to practice in Madison, uh, Mississippi. Uh, he has coordinated hysteroscopy education of fellows in the Society of Reproductive Surgeons. And he has uh, a intellectual property rights on a technique of infusing air with ultrasound uh, visualization and hysteroscopy for a very comprehensive fertility evaluation. So I'm really interested in learning more about that. And so I want to welcome Dr. Preston Parry to the Fertility Health Podcast. Welcome, Press. Thank you for joining Thank me today. You. Thank you, Dr. Charles. Uh, privileged to be here. You've done great things online and for educating the masses. So it's a privilege to be a part of uh, what you've been achieving. Well, uh, much too kind. Thank you, Press. I appreciate that. So. We have uh, a patient uh, with infertility. Uh, they've been trying, maybe a 31-year-old uh, woman uh, and her and her husband have been trying to conceive for about a year, and they're coming to you. Uh, haven't uh, th th She's tested for ovulation, and she's uh, pre uh, detecting uh, uh, ovulation uh, mid-cycle. He has had a sperm analysis. They have not checked the last part of the fallopian tubes and the uterine cavity. So what, what can we do here to help them? What are the options of doing that? 
and what are some uh, uh, ways that you can help them uh, get a get a complete evaluation? Sure. So the quick thing, first, a 30-year-old who's been trying for one year has about a 3% chance per month of spontaneous pregnancy leading to a live birth. That's a statistic that shocks most people. They don't realize every time they're having sex, they're thinking, this is going to be it, and then it isn't. And in fact, actually, uh, again, they don't expect 97% chance they're going to have their period that month. So you're saying that after, after they've gone through a year of trying as opposed to uh, a, fertile, a, fertile, a couple just trying for the first time? Correct. A 30-year-old yeah. trying for the first month has a 40% chance of being pregnant. By a year, it's down to 3%. So something is going on, something is driving this. 80% of women get pregnant within three months, so if it's been a year, she should have been pregnant four times by now on average. So something's going on. And I always say fertility may not be easy, but it's simple. It boils down to four things. Guy has to have sperm, woman has to have eggs, they've got to meet in the tubes and have a place to go in the uterus. That's really most of what we focus on. So sperm, semen analysis, if that's normal, the guy's probably fine. 30-year-old, you know, unless there's something worrisome for ovarian failure or a lack of periods where, um, again, she, there may be PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and overabundance of eggs, you know, likely she has reasonable ovarian reserve for these things, and that can be addressed. So then it starts bringing things down to the tubes and the uterus. For the uterus, the gold standard is hysteroscopy. If you want to understand the uterus, I'd say you should have a hysteroscopy uh, for things. And you can, all, I think while the ultrasound is great for the muscle of the uterus or the, in, the myometrium is the formal calling and a lot of the things on the outside of the uterus hysteroscopy is where a baby attaches and looks inside the uterus that's considered the gold standard for things so what about the tubes though you got the uterus and hysteroscopy we all agree on that so uh, the gold standard of course for the tubes is the traditional hysterosalpingogram where we inject contrast dye up through the uterus uh, using x-ray pictures, patients fully awake, and it just takes a few minutes. There's definitely some abdominal cramping with that. So do you have something that would compare equally well with that procedure? I would argue that possibly even better. So the, th the gold standard actually for the tubes is laparoscopy. So you take a fiber optic camera through the belly button, um, and you're injecting dye into the uterus and watching it spill out. That's a $10,000 surgery, $2,000 deductible incisions, anesthesia, um, you know, and a recovery. Most people aren't going to go to that first line. The HSG has been around since 1911, hasn't evolved a heck of a lot since it was introduced. And the thing is, many people don't realize the limitations of HSG for accuracy. Most people will quote a 65 to 90% uh, chance of picking up tubal disease. So it actually misses between a third and 10% of tubal disease. And the specificity is around 95%. So if it finds something off and it's right, but it can still miss a lot. A lot of false positives too. Could be false positives as well, yeah. And that's kind of an issue. Actually, one of the things that you worry about for HSG is there's so much high pressure with how it's conventionally used. Under ideal circumstances, that isn't the case. But I always say sperm don't swim with the jaws of life. They can't prop open a closed tube. And so a lot of times when people are putting the force in and they're creating the pain, they're using far greater pressure to drive dye through than necessarily the sperm can travel. And so you can say that the tube is open sometimes when it's actually 
closed under normal physiologic circumstances. Press, wouldn't you, I'm sorry, but wouldn't you also argue the opposite that sometimes, even though we think the tube is blocked in the very beginning as it leaves the uterus, it could also be just because of so much pressure of the dye being put in, it causes a spasm at that opening of the tube and it's being told to be falsely negative, uh, falsely uh, blocked. Yeah. I was exactly just about to say that oh, as well. Okay. So you're, we're completely thinking alike for this. This is, mm-hmm. this is one of those issues. So one of the things, the alternative that has emerged, um, and this was started around 1984 with sonosalpingography. You use air-infused saline, um, and you watch with ultrasound to see if bubbles are dispersing through the tubes. And it's a two-dimensional black-and-white approach, and it, is, it can work. But the thing is, there's three problems with it. One, it hurts just as much as HSG, and many people describe HSG as the single most painful test in gynecology. Um, there are some people who do a gentle HSG, um, but I'd say many, many people have an uncomfortable test. And if you don't believe me, just Google it. <laughs> You'll right. see a lot of people for the, who've had pain. Although endometrial, although endometrial biopsy is probably right, right there, too. I'd say those two are tied for office procedures or outpatient procedures for things. We have one person who does a gentle HSG in town, um, and he uses actually Versed and fentanyl uh, during it. If you need medications for sedation, for surgery, to get the procedure, it's not always gentle. Um, Second thing is there's a steep learning curve, so a lot of people can do it. It takes a while for them to learn how. And the third thing is you sometimes have problems where you're only able to assess one side. Um, but not the other. So some of the South and geography is an alternative, but some specialists use it, but not many. Um, the thing is, if you can use air bubbles in saline to see if the tubes are open, and you can do hysteroscopy gently, you could actually watch those bubbles go through on hysteroscopy and see if the tubes are open. Or that was our hypothesis, and we went out to prove it. And we did a, um, we actually prospectively tracked 600 women, actually it was more than that by the time we finished, um, how their hysteroscopies compared to both HSG and to laparoscopy. And what we found is we had 98 to 100% pickup for tubal damage or blockage for things with air-infused saline at office hysteroscopy. So remember, HSG was 65 to 90%. So that's clearly better. And we had about 84% specificity. So we had a little more times when we thought it was blocked when it wasn't, but there was a very low likelihood that there was damage that we would have missed. So, but we're comparing it to, uh, or what is your comparison to the, to laparoscopy to determine if the two, okay, I got you. Okay, good, good, good. All right, so so when would, I mean, that's, that's really an excellent outpatient, very gentle way to determine if the fallopian tubes are open through hysteroscopy. Why, other than... Uh, the diagnostic purposes for for, histo- for hysteroscopy for infertility. When when are we using this tool? What would you tell a, a patient uh, of when we can approach uh, with the hysteroscope as opposed to having to do it through abdominal surgery? What what are some reasons that we need to use hysteroscopy surgically? Well, okay. So you're so first of all, again, for understanding the inside of the uterus, I'll do one quick comment on diagnostic. Then I'll go um, operative. Diagnostic, 
you use a 2.9 millimeter hysteroscope. So it's the dimension of a coffee straw. It's so small it can go in the male bladder without anesthesia. If it can go in the guy's anatomy, women can tolerate it well. And the, uh, the fertility and sterility article we published on it, we showed 90% had mild to no discomfort, 9% moderate comparable to a pap smear, and 1% was worse than uh, they were severe or extreme. Now, is this a rigid, a rigid scope or a flexible press? Yes, okay. Nine millimeter flexible. And so we can even do it vaginoscopically so you don't even use a speculum. We actually even had some data we showed that the speculum was the worst part of it. So if we're doing it without even a speculum, people don't feel this. So if you can, again, relative to saline infusion sonograms, which are another way of looking inside the uterus, there are many ways of making gynecology more gentle. In fact, and let me just interject, I'm so sorry. Now, when you talk about the vaginoscopy, so that's not even with a prep, correct? You just basically just put the telescope through. You're not doing a betadine prep of the vagina and cervix. Nope. Okay. You're just placing okay. the camera, advancing straight into the uterus, and seeing what you have. And, okay. again, people barely even feel that. And this is also something that I think that's important as a social justice issue. I mean, if you look at it, Ears, nose, and throat, they view, view nasal endoscopy as inseparable from the physical exam. You look at urology. 98% of urologists have small caliber endoscopes to look in the male bladder in the office without anesthesia. Only 2% of OBGYNs do. Women get less accurate, more painful care as a d result of disparities in access to technology. I actually believe we should be teaching more about office hysteroscopy and creating opportunities so that women get the same gentle, accurate care that men do through their urologists. I couldn't, couldn't, couldn't agree with more, more with you. Now, the flexible hysteroscope, though, is strictly diagnostic, uh, minimal ability to do any type of uh, surgical procedure. So if we, if we do one of these things and we see a polyp, which is, a, for the audience, a benign overgrowth of the lining of the uterus, okay, uh, that's something that you would remove in the office. Uh, did you have, uh, so you, you would take that out with a little larger hysteroscope. Uh, what about the fibroids? Uh, how much are you doing in the office and when would you say, hey, this needs to go to the operating room or even you wouldn't approach it through the hysteroscope? So I think, great question on a lot of that. So first of all, I think if you, for a lot of OBGYNs, it's hard for them to get good anesthesia in the office. For fertility specialists, we're doing in vitro fertilization. If you can get a person comfortable for an egg retrieval, whatever circumstances you can do for keeping a person comfortable for getting eggs, you can do for hysteroscopy. So practically any surgery that can be done in the OR can also be done under the, in the office with a reasonable setup for things. And so we do practically everything in the office. The myomectomy I've been holding off a little bit for, just and I think that you want and I'm starting to move to that now um, because I wasn't doing morselation in the office that's a way of sort of grinding up a fibroid you just wave a wand over it and sort of suctions the fibroid in and gets rid of it but I'm about to start uh, doing that as well those are ones though you want to make sure the fibroid is more into the uterine cavity than relatively into the muscle of the uterus because you just don't want to go too deep and make a hole in the uterus yeah, and, and uh, to, just to clarify to our audience, when you have these fibroids, which are typically benign uh, tumors of the uterus, very common, uh, the, the abnormalities 
that, uh, uh, of, the, of the uterine cavity, if they're distorting the uterine cavity, those are the ones that you want to remove. Fibroids in and of themselves have not been shown to impair fertility unless they're affecting the uterine cavity. So we go after the ones that are inside the cavity itself or have some mild invasion into the muscle, but the ones that are really deep into the muscle, uh, those uh, will probably be better served to come from uh, through the belly. Would, would you not agree, Press? Mm-hmm. Okay. For laparoscopy, and while there's some data that's putting a little bit towards the... Here's the thing. Fibroids are very heterogeneous. It means they're very different. We believe that number, size, and location all matter, but the more distant they are from the cavity, the fewer they are, and the smaller they are, the less likely they are to be relevant. But the most important are those that push into the cavity, and you can see that when they push into the cavity, disrupting the lining where a baby might attach, you can see 80% of lower, lower fertility rates, and the one um, prospective trial that I can think of that looked at live birth outcomes actually showed if they were pushing into the cavity at the moment of conception, you had a two-thirds miscarriage rate. So, you know, we really do care about fibroids, but we care about... So fibroids are outgrowths of the muscle. Polyps are outgrowths of the lining. You can have Ashermans, which is a scarring or fusing of the lining together. You can have setae, which are a fusion of the uterine walls. That's a sort of a maldevelopment from birth. Um, you can have all kinds of things, like a cancers in there. You can have a cesarean scar isthmuseals, which is sort of an outpouching uh, of the... Um, a C-section scar. Um, there are all kinds of things that can go awry in the uterus. I see a lot of endometritis. We're sort of the epicenter for STDs in the U.S., and so we find a lot of people who've had previous infections as well. And usually you just need antibiotics to clear that up, but sometimes it takes a little more with resection as well. So how would you resect, if you see somebody with, I'm presuming, chronic endometritis, what is it that you're actually resecting? So, first of all, 90% of people with chronic endometritis will respond to a two-week course of doxycycline. So, usually you can get antibiotics um, to take care of it. However, some people have persistent endometritis in spite of repeated courses, and those are people where you might actually superficially resect the lining in sort of a global um, sort of smoothing it out um, to get rid of um, some of the stratum basal and even a, or stratum functional and a little bit of the stratum basal, so going a little deeper to minimize the risk of recurrence. But again, those tend to be the exceptions relative to the rule. Do you have any uh, outcome on, on patients who are, re- are resistant to antibiotics and, and actually responded to the surgery? Um, sample size is very hard, and I, I'm a big believer. So as a former epidemiologist of the design and interpretation of literature, I always believe in having a lot of numbers. I can right. tell you right now I have uh, one person, uh, you know, just in the past week who had six courses of doxycycline to clear up endometritis um, and had three failed um, uh, transfers of embryos. We um, went in for the hysteroscopy just to see if anything had happened, found persistent endometritis inside of that uh, six courses, we clean things up and she's pregnant now. I don't like to treat or practice based on anecdote. I'd love to do really good studies on this. You know, we see uh, a, lot of, a lot of initial calls by the pathologist of an endometrial biopsy as having chronic endometritis and there's this special CD138 stain. But in, in articles that I've been reading, 
their their criteria in the materials and methods were 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 more than five of these plasma cells per 400 magnification field. And so I've asked our local pathologist to start using that as the criteria. And so the number of diagnoses now has gone down uh, in, in using that cutoff. So, so just to, we, we, we digress a little bit. So we've had adhesions, there's polyps, there's fibroids, and there's these congenital septums that uh, will significantly increase the risk of miscarriage up to, say, 44% or so uh, if, if a patient conceives. What are, in our remaining moments, uh, press? What, what are some risks? In the office, obviously, pretty rare to have a complication, but in the operating room for these large fibroids or even pretty severe scarring inside the uterus, the Asherman syndrome patients, what are some things that, that patients need to be uh, um, made aware uh, before going into these surgeries? Well, I think you always are talking about infection, although for us, uh, we're right now seeing an infection rate for office hysteroscopy about 1 in 2,000 cases, so it's uh, pretty rare. For, um, and normal for an HSG is about uh, between 1 in 200 and 1 in 50. Um, for, you know, bleeding, the more you're taking out fibroids, again, those are where you can get a little deeper into things, have bleeding issues, but generally that should be um, rare. For allergic reactions to anesthesia, anytime you're giving an anesthesia, you can have a problem. I think you watch for uterine perforation. Now, the interesting thing for us is having done office hysteroscopy, we're already navigating a lot of the issues for the cervix, and we've um, sort of guided or figured out the path, particularly if there are problems. So, uh, again, uterine perforation should be rare, as well as for when you're doing myomectomy in these deeper fibroids, or also if you have a severe measurement, so stage three, stage four, depending on your system, so almost obliteration, including people who've had endometrial ablations. If you have no landmarks, it's very easy to get in the wrong plane and make a hole in the uterus, and that's why those you often want to be in the operating room uh, to minimize the risk of problems. Well, excellent. Uh, terrific review. Uh, ladies, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my, my guest today uh, was Dr. Preston Parry, uh, who uh, is well-versed in hysteroscopy, uh, does education on this area all, all over the country. And if you are in the Madison, Wisconsin area, please don't hesitate to... Madison, Mississippi. Up. I used to be uh, <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. I apologize. Everybody, don't go, don't go to the wrong place. Madison, Madison uh, Mississippi. Uh, and and uh, you'll be, be, receive excellent care from Dr. Preston. Uh, Press, once again, thank you so much for your time today. I really, really appreciate it. A privilege. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.